Who's ready to talk some deer management? Let's do this with Jim Heffelfinger. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, what's up? This is Jim Huntsman, the host of the Western Huntsman Podcast, coming at you from the Broken Tine studio right here in right now sunny Hayden, Idaho. Glad you guys are joining us. This is episode number 65, and I'm joined with a stud. His name is Jim Heffelfinger, uh, known on Instagram as Jim Deer. But before we get to that, i got to tell you, this episode is brought to you by Phelps Game Calls, the oldest sponsor on the Western Huntsman podcast. Guys, let's talk about Phelps Game Calls for just a minute. Started by Jason Phelps in his garage like 10, 12 years ago, somewhere around there. And it has now grown to one of the most popular, uh, biggest call company in the industry. And that does not happen by accident. And I know, you know, you, you guys got to remember, turkey season is coming up. So jump on phelpsgamecalls.com and check out the turkey calls. Uh, they've got some diaphragm calls. They've got some box calls. All the all the things that you'll need to, to call in that big Tom this year is going to be at phelpsgamecalls.com. I love all the Phelps calls. I use them for predator hunting. I use them for elk hunting. I use them for turkey hunting, uh, coyotes, all of it. It's it's a it's a great company that's just kind of got the essence of what it is to have an American dream to take something that like an idea that you have right and and find like this problem that is within the call company industry and create a solution to it. And that's what Phelps Game Calls did. So. Don't forget to check them out. If you're in the market for calls, check out Phelps Game Calls at phelpsgamecalls.com. Let's try that again. Um, And don't forget to use promo code HUNTSMAN10 at checkout to save you 10% off. It helps the show. It helps you. And it helps Phelps Game Calls. It's like this triad of uh, benefits to everybody. So I appreciate you guys supporting the sponsors. It's uh, It really means a lot to us. So, guys, this episode is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'm sure you know who Jim Heffelfinger is. Uh, if, if not, you must have been living under a rock. Uh, but he is a kind of the leading deer biologist down in uh, Arizona. And he has, you know, his clipped toenails know more about deer and biology and wildlife management than I'll ever know. He's forgotten more about deer than I'll ever know. I'm really excited to bring uh, Jim on the show. I've been kind of, we've been messaging back and forth for a long time now and finally got the schedules worked out. We answered a lot of questions that you guys put on our uh, Facebook post in the group, Hunting the West, the Western Huntsman. If you're not in that group, join us on uh, on Facebook. A lot of good, good discussions going on there. Um, so that's, what's coming up with Jim. It's weird. It's, it's weird having somebody with my first name. Uh, I think that's the first time we've had that on the show. So I, I like stutter when I say it, <laughs> but Jim is a great dude. You guys are going to really like hearing from him. Um, as promised, we do have a winner 
for the, all the trivia questions you guys have been answering all winter. So I'm, I'm kind of doing these once a quarter. And this this last quarter, we've had just a series of different trivia questions, whether it's related to deer or elk or biology or management, public lands. Uh, we've even had some product trivia questions, and we've had some really good responses. And I appreciate everybody who's uh, participated. But like I told you, we've only got one winner on this one. Um, and honestly, if you're if you're like in the game of you know doing some of these uh, giveaways that are out there uh, throughout the hunting industry in general, you know there's there's a lot of them and there's a lot of really good ones. But one thing that happens on with these giveaways is your odds. I feel like your odds are a lot better because some of the trivia questions we'd only get like five or six responses. Now others we would get a couple hundred, and so. Even still, it's not like some of the giveaways out there where you're up against thousands of people and your odds are just, you know, not that great. You actually have really good odds to win our giveaways. So we're, we're I've got to come up with something for the next um, quarter, Q2 of 2021. We're going to have another giveaway, and I'm not sure what that's going to be yet, but we're working on it. Either way, I hope you guys learned something from these trivia questions. Uh, I did coming up with them. I learned a lot, and that's kind of what this show is all about. We want to learn about the wildlife that we are in pursuit of so we become more passionate, so we protect the lifestyle that is hunting, especially hunting the West. So with that, um, I want to announce the winner. Let me push this little tab over here. Okay, guys, the winner of quarter two, his name is Dan Catrone. Now, Dan, I hope I'm saying your last name right. Dan Catron. It's C-A-T-R-O-N. Dan, if you're listening to this, you, my friend, have won this round and a full Phelps Calls giveaway. Can't beat it, man. Can't beat it. So I'm going to get on the phone with... Uh, Mr. Dirk Durham, the bugler, and I'm going to tell him about you, and uh, we're going to need you to write into me at Jim at the Western Huntsman, and uh, I'm sorry, Jim at the Western Huntsman.com, and give me your address, your mailing address, um, and so we can get this package out to you. There's going to be a bugle tube in it. There's going to be some diaphragm reads, uh, probably a couple other things, and it's coming your way. Dan Catron or Catrone, dude, I am terribly sorry. I'm horrible at pronouncing. I can't even pronounce my own last name right half the time, so bear with me, but uh, hopefully you're excited to get this gear. I'd love to get it out to you again. Shoot me an email, Dan. I'm going to give you until next episode, next week's episode is released uh, to respond to this, and that is going to be at Jim at thewesternhuntsman.com. Send it on over, brother. Get you this Phelps Game Call stuff. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, with that said, I just mentioned next week's episode. Guys, uh, I am in uh, outside of hunting and podcasting. I am up against a major, major deadline. And so next week, I'm not going to have a full-on episode release. What I'm going to have, I mean, actually, it is a full episode. It's like a two-hour episode. But what, what happened was a few weeks back, um, guy over at the Western Contours, Western Contours podcast, um, if you haven't checked that podcast out, you got to. It's, it's a great, insightful hunting podcast from my friend Guy, who's been on the show. Uh, and I've been on his show. But anyway, a few weeks back, he had um, kind of like this panel. And there was a bunch of panelists. And I was on there. Uh, Kyle Davidson from DCA Custom Arrows was on there. Garrett Weaver from On Point, uh, who's got the On Point podcast, uh, was on there. Joe Gillia from Elk Bros. Michael Batiste from Elk Calling Academy. And Chad Riker was on there uh, from Backcountry Rookies. 
And so it was like all these, all these guys get on there. And what was super interesting about it was, so you have like somebody like Kyle, right? Who builds arrows, DCA custom arrows. Um, who's very, very, very technical. Same with Garrett Weaver, who's a super technical guy when it comes to archery. They know like the FOC of each arrow and how they're flying in feet per second and all these details that dudes like me, I'm a freaking monkey. I don't pay attention to that kind of stuff. I just buy arrows and I make sure they're all the same, the same spine, uh, get some really good broadheads that are recommended or whatever, and I go out there and I shoot it like crazy to make sure it's shooting right and take it to the field. Um, I'm not saying either way is right and either, or either way is wrong, but the, the interesting part of that episode was all the different perspectives. So that's kind of what uh, that episode is. And so guy is, uh, was gracious enough to send me the audio file so I can use it because I need, I need to take next week and, um, ha- get this, get everything ready. I've got for this, this deadline I'm dealing with. And so that's what we got coming out next week. Um, it's, it's really good. It's really entertaining. Let me know what you guys think of that episode. Cause I, I really had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, and, and they made fun of me for not being technical enough. And I made fun of them for being too technical and it, it was just a good time. Lots of laughs. And that's what's on the docket for next week. Um, so while I get this episode, or I'm sorry, this deadline <laughs> sorted out, we're getting close, man. Getting super close. So anyway, coming back this week, we have Jim Heffelfinger. And I gave him a heck of an intro. You guys are going to really like Jim. If you've never heard Jim on a podcast before, uh, you're you're in for a treat. And he's like got his hands into all sorts of stuff. He's been on uh, the Fresh Tracks episodes with Randy Newberg. Um, and he's just been on a ton of different podcasts and he's just got a lot of great information, a lot of great experience and a really interesting perspective. And so we talk a lot about like uh, deer and deer biology and hybridization and habitat and wildlife management. I mean, we get into a little bit of everything and this is the kind of episode that I really love doing because there's a lot of great information that'll make you a better hunter and a better conservationist. That's kind of the point of this episode. Guys, again, Dan Catron, Catron, however you pronounce your last name, reach out to me so I can get you your package. Um, and if you guys don't mind, uh, leave us a review on Apple iTunes. It really helps us. And also share the episode. If you like this show, uh, share it with your friends, family, whoever you think would benefit from the information on this episode. I really appreciate when, when you guys share it. Uh, we are growing and we uh, want to keep up that momentum and keep growing. Really appreciate it, guys. Lots of fun doing this. Uh, with that said, Without further ado, let's get into it with Jim Heffelfinger, Mr. Jim Deer. Check out his links in the show notes and let's roll. All right, guys, I finally nailed down a time where I can get on the line with uh, Jim Heffelfinger, who uh, I refer to as one of the world's foremost deer experts out there. And this has been um, a, kind of a long time coming. And Jim, I, you know, you've been on so many podcasts, I was feeling left out. So I, I'm, I'm really happy you're on, on my show. Welcome aboard and thanks for joining me. Well, it's all downhill from here after that uh, introduction. Henry Ford talked <laughs> about how he wouldn't allow any of his men to consider themselves experts because then they they stopped learning. They figured they'd do everything. And that that's mm-hmm. definitely not me. I'm I don't consider myself an expert. I just I love deer, I love to read about them, and I love to write about them. Yeah, you've got you've made this whole career of it and in wildlife management and deer and 
Uh, I've heard you on on some other podcasts and and just the the wealth of information through the studies you've done over the years and the different types of species you've managed. It's it's an interesting career. It, it's one of those things where I always think, man, I. I really took the wrong path when, when I, when I got out of the military and went to college for, you know, business and stuff, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I should have gone down this path. Uh, I, I want to kind of get uh, your background and, and how you came to where you're at today. And, and like, was, was what you do, first of all, what's your title, Jim? Yeah, my title is um, wildlife science coordinator for the Arizona game and fish department. And, is is this field, is this like always something you've wanted to do since you were a kid or how did you get into this? Yeah, not since I was a little kid because <clears throat> I grew up in Aurora, Illinois, which is kind of a suburb of Chicago. It certainly is now, but in an urban setting and didn't have any experience with getting out in nature and um, and, and anything like that other than a little fishing on, on family vacation. So I didn't have an early exposure to that. And then in eighth grade, we moved to a small town in southeastern Wisconsin called uh, Horicon, and, and at Horicon is the Horicon National Wildlife Refuge and the Horicon Marsh, which is the largest freshwater marsh in, in North America. And so I started getting out canoeing and fishing and seeing nature and realizing that it's just kind of fun to be out in the woods. And and um, and nature and wildlife really was interesting to me. And so I, I but I was a C student in high school. I was never, um, I was never very smart. And so well, I, I knew we yeah, didn't think it. Yeah, I didn't think about college much. You know, I didn't think I was smart enough for college. I, I signed up for a community college to be, they had a program called Wildlife Assistant, I think it was. And I thought, well, I could probably do that at two-year community college. And then somewhere along the line before I enrolled, before I went there, I realized that wasn't going to allow me to do anything really, that I needed a four-year degree. And I enrolled at UW, UW Wisconsin, Stevens Point. And, and that was the largest undergraduate wildlife school in the country. And so I got up there. Um, my grade point average was 2.66. Um, I was taking remedial math to try to catch up and, <laughs> that's and exa- like, that's, you sound just like me. <laughs> the second semester was 2.67. I didn't really know how to study. And then each semester, my grade point average got better and better and better. As I got some momentum, I got my legs underneath. Me. I kind of started getting into this idea of being a wildlife biologist and, and, um, graduated with a 3.11. My last semester was almost a 4.0. And so it's really, it's really a case of kind of being lost and not sure what you want to do. And then just finding your calling in college actually, and finish a bachelor's degree and then uh, couldn't find a job. So I went, I got a master's degree and, um, and now I'm a biologist as they say. And so like, as you're going along in college and stuff, does that, you feel like the fact that you, you picked up on this, okay, I've got this passion for wildlife and, and um, you know, wildlife management. So it, it changes your focus. So you, you go from having to kind of, you know, shuffle your way through college and, and get by just to get by to actually you want to learn this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You see people who have your, your kind of degree and, and the stuff that they're doing and really mm-hmm. energizes you to say, Ah, that's what I want to do. And, and you can look forward to that. And you're excited about that because the first year it's algebra and trigonometry and chemistry. And you're going, ugh, this is yeah, like high school me. on steroids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you start getting into your junior year and you start getting more wildlife and ecology classes. And then the momentum really picks up. It really gets exciting. I was, I, I've, uh, so I just, I just turned 40 and I was telling my wife, I'm like, man, I wish I can go to college now because I didn't mm-hmm. care. Uh, when I, when I was in college and I, I adult onset college for me, I was in my thirties when I finally, uh, went full time and all that kind of stuff, you know, but, um, 
anyway, I, I, I like learning. The older I get, the more I like to learn. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the reasons I started this podcast is, is I like to talk about it and learn and from, especially from guys like you. So, uh, yeah. You- and, and I'd encourage any, any younger people listening that are thinking, Oh, I'd, I'd like to do what he does, but I don't know about college. I would say just go for it. I mean, just get, cause you'll, you'll be like me. Probably you'll get in there and, and things will take off. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, so you got, you got your master's degree and then what happened? Yeah, I got a master's degree and, and I, so I grew up in Wisconsin shoveling snow, not real happy about all of that stuff. And then did my master's degree in South Texas and, and that was pretty exciting. And so by the time I got done with my master's degree, the thought of going back and shoveling snow in the Midwest wasn't very appealing. So I applied for jobs in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. And that was at a time where there wasn't many jobs available. So that was pretty gutsy to do that. But I really liked the cactus and sunsets and and coyotes and wanted to stay down there and got a job um, in South Texas as a manager of wildlife operations for a ranch. And that was pretty, that was pretty neat because I was in charge of a trophy whitetail ranch uh, with quail hunting. That was $400 a day per gun. And that was back in the um, early, about 1990. And so it was a really high end ranch. And we had a few zebras. We had a camel named Abdul. We had some red lechway, uh, kudu, black buck antelope axis. We had some exotics there. And, and so that was exciting. And, and then just, I mean, taking guys out and rattling for trophy whitetails in South Texas. That's what I was doing right out of my master's degree. So that was pretty neat. But I still felt like I was kind of stuck as a biologist on this little ranch. Well, it's 10,000 mm-hmm. acres. But on this ranch, and I really felt like I wasn't a legitimate biologist. I really wanted to work for an agency. I wanted to work with the public and and do bigger things than just that little ranch. And um, and so after about a year and a half, I was putting applications in and um, went to the Bureau of Land Management in Carlsbad. And I thought that is the pinnacle of being a wildlife biologist. If I could be a wildlife biologist for the federal government, that's like the top of the heap. I have arrived and I got there and realized that I really didn't like doing what that person does uh, as being a biologist for the feds, a lot of bureaucracy. I was reviewing environmental assessments and, oh. and designating backcountry byways and just doing a bunch of stuff that was really not game animal oriented. You're not dealing with the hunting public. And so when Arizona game and fish department called me three months into that BLM job and said, Hey, we have a regional biologist position. We, we saw your application still in our files. And this regional biologist would manage pronghorn antelope, bighorn sheep, mule deer, white-tailed deer, um, three species of quail, turkeys, black bears, mountain lions. And you'd be doing helicopter surveys and telemetry. And I said, wow, where do I sign up? (laughs) And we had just had our first son there in Carlsbad the month after we arrived. And so we had a newborn. We had just hung all the pictures on the wall. The prospect of moving um, was not a very good um, thought, but I said, that is a dream job. And I, and I did that. And that was 29 years ago. I started working for Arizona game and fish department. So I, I was a regional biologist for 23 years in Southeastern Arizona. And then for the last five years, I shifted to a position that's called wildlife science coordinator, where I'm kind of a science advisor for the administration, for the department to make sure that the decisions we make and the policies we have and our management is, uh, has a solid foundation of, of science behind it. Gotcha. That's, I think that that's missing in a lot of places. <clears throat> um, it, it is unique that our department is yeah. forward thinking enough to, to do something like that. Do you have, uh, what, what are your thoughts with, uh, that? Th- this comes up a lot on my show, like this, this whole ballot box uh, wildlife management thing. 
Uh, do you have a take on that and, and what, what is right about it and what is wrong about it? Yeah, it's a tough situation because we don't want <clears throat> like a huge urban center deciding um, wildlife management because because frankly, they're not in, in touch with a lot of things that are important. They're not in touch with the um, our North American model of wildlife conservation, as we call it, and how important mm-hmm. it is. They have a just a skewed and many times distorted view of wildlife conservation just happening without someone paying the bills and someone being involved. But the system we have is is the best that's ever been devised and by mankind in in uh, the history uh, of, of any continent, really. And so people that aren't aware of it are, are just a little too quick sometimes to just go to the ballot box and check boxes and not really know the repercussions. Yeah, because it's it's so easy to to sit there and and watch some some ad that's been propagated by some organization uh, about how cute and cuddly a wolf is or, or uh, grizzly bears and, and all these. And, and now we're going down a rabbit hole here, but um, there, there's so much emotion in it and, and no mm-hmm. real science. And it, it drives me crazy. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of a sticky situation because we as state wildlife agencies manage the wildlife for the public. That's what we do. We, we, um, everybody has a stake in, in wildlife management. So some people then argue, well, not, why not put it to the ballot? But as you said, that now, now conservation is at the mercy of some slick marketing firm and, mm-hmm. and how they're able to sway the urban public that doesn't really know. Yeah. Yeah. And these, these lobbyist firms that get, get hired by uh, some of these organizations and, and I could see how, how it works well. You know, it was, it was my daughter's birthday the other day and up, up in our neck of the woods, up in the Spokane area. Um, I'm on the Idaho side, but just across the border of Spokane, Washington, they've got this place called Cattails, and it's it's like this uh, conservation zoo for um, you know wild tigers and uh, or not wild, they're mm-hmm. de- most of them are domesticated right. and have been for a long time. But they so anyway they they I saw uh, Tiger King. I saw Tiger King. I'm yeah, familiar. yeah. <laughs> it's a little more. I was hoping I was when I when I got there. I'm like, okay, we got to find the owners and see if they're as crazy as this dude from Tiger King. Man, and never did see him. They just, I just dealt with some. Uh, we we actually did this private tour thing because uh, my my daughters are way into animals. They they want to be wildlife biologists. Mm, awesome. And so. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it because I think it's going to help me become a better hunter. <laughs> so anyways, we take him to the zoo and they, they had a, uh, basically acquired these two black bear cubs a few years back. And, uh, you know, they're, they, they walk up to the gate and give these bears uh, a dog biscuit. Speaking of dogs, my mm-hmm. dog's over there shaking. I don't know if you can hear that. But um, anyways, <laughs> you lay down and be quiet. Good he heard the word dog biscuit. Yeah, he did. He jumped right up. <laughs> He's pretty excited. <laughs> it's the only time he moves fast anymore. Um, anyway, just the the portrayal that they have, and and they're they're feeding this bear, and and the way that they're talking, um, I can see how people can individualize a lot of these animals with this emotional attachment that really doesn't exist, and and vote for things like the recent California bear ban bill that was coming out, and to to ban black bear hunting, you know, and mm-hmm. and. I don't know. Again, we, we kind of went down a, down the a lost trail here, but um, yeah, it, it's just a, it's kind of a mess in a lot of ways. Yeah. And especially when it comes to wolves, you know, a lot of people have dogs laying on their carpet right there. And so they have this, this attachment to a canid and mm-hmm. they, they just transfer that to some of the wild animals. Don't think of them as just another carnivore running out there in the landscape, like foxes and coyotes and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I, I think we established that you have a lot of credibility on what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
I, I want to talk about uh, something that's been, and I think that it's, it's come up on my show a lot because of the kind of the regionally where, where I'm based here in North Idaho. Uh, this has been an issue. And it, the, and the issue is whitetail encroachment onto, you know, what is normally mule deer habitat and the loss of mule deer numbers. Um, we've had some discussions. I have Dr. Geist on. Uh, oh, fantastic. Months oh. ago. And he, yeah, he's just a, man, he was, I, I could have talked to him for hours. He, he was so much fun. I've been um, friends with him for 20 years, more than 20 years. Actually, I contacted him first in graduate school in about 1987. That was the first conversation I had with him. But yeah, we, we maintain pretty good contact. I love Val. I heard he got a huge whitetail this last fall up in BC, but I haven't <clears> seen <throat> pictures. So this is, this is pure speculation at this point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I didn't hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, but, but, but yeah, so he's got some theories and, and, uh, you know, as hunters, we're out there in the woods a lot. I think we get theories and, and I, I just kind of, one of the biggest things I wanted to talk to you about is what, what happens with whitetails moving into mule deer habitat? Why do mule deer numbers seem to go into like this, this, uh, spiral? And this is not a, I'm pro mule deer only and only want to see mule deer. I, I'm a big time whitetail hunter too. And that's, that's a recent thing. Cause I used to be just a mule deer guy, but um, I want to kind of talk yeah, I, about that. Yeah, I am. I am all pro um, mule deer and I think whitetail should be grubbed off the face of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Of course, but there is a, a, a local rivalry sometimes in, in Arizona, especially within our Arizona game fish department, where you've got the diehard cows, whitetail hunters, and then you have diehard mule deer hunters. And I just, I love mule deer because I spent a lot of my professional life in mule deer. And, and actually coming from that trophy whitetail ranch, the giant trophy whitetails, 160 Boone and Crockett, 170 Boone and Crockett. And then Jeez. I came to Arizona and we're flying surveys and the biologists, local biologists are getting all excited over this little cow's whitetail that wouldn't score more than 110 Boone and Crockett points. You know, I thought, why yeah. are they getting excited over that little dink? It's only 110 Boone and Crockett points. Because I didn't <laughs> realize how small they were. And so I thought, well, these whitetail here in Arizona are very underwhelming compared to the South Texas trophies that I'm used to dealing yeah, with. And so then I saw my first desert mule deer, which I was in Wisconsin and in the East, I didn't have any experience with mule deer, but then I saw my first desert mule deer and I said, now there's a deer, there's a beautiful deer. And so I've really been a huge fan of mule deer ever, ever since. Hmm. Interesting. And I, so I grew up in Utah where it's, it's, there's only mule deer, you know? And so that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of where my background came from. It's like, man, man, that's what we did. It was, it was all about mule deer. And so I've got like this deep seated childhood thing with mule deer and I love chasing them in the high country, 10,000 feet, plus elevation kind of places. Uh, and, and so I have that side of it. And, and what I think, what, here's what, here's where I think hunters screw it up too. Uh, just from like a personal observation, um, you got to enjoy both of them because there's, there it's hunting them is totally different, you know? Mm-hmm, and and yeah. so there is something amazing about hunting a whitetail during the rut. Right. But hunting. Yeah, a that's novel for mule. you too. What's you that? grew up with mule deer. You you grew up with mule deer, so the whitetail novel for you too. Oh it's yeah, yeah, really different. Yeah, yeah. No, I, all deer, all deer are pretty awesome. So yeah, and and it's it's just an amazing. Uh, if if you can experience both, see, I I it, the one of the advantages I have is like I can hunt both, right? And so uh, and and I know that's not the case for everybody, but there. I mean, most people out west, you, there's there's opportunity out there, but um, yeah, I just enjoy both the different hunts and. But I am concerned about our mule deer. 
I, I am concerned about our mule deer, especially like up here in the Northwest. And uh, yep. I know there's, there's other, you were talking before we hit record about uh, what's going on in the desert down, down in Arizona uh, and in the hybridization and all these things that are, it's such a complicated topic. Can you give yeah. us like a bird's eye view of what uh, your, I don't want to say theory, but just a, a synopsis of the mule deer situation, yep. both in Texas and the rest of the American West? Yeah, one thing we should say is that um, I, um, in addition to my job with Arizona Game and Fish Department, I also am the chairman of the uh, Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Mule Deer Working Group. So it's a it's a mule deer working group made up of uh, a mule deer expert from each of the 24 Western states and Canadian provinces. So every place where there's mule deer, every every province or, or state where there's mule deer, we have a mule deer expert from that jurisdiction together in this mule deer working group. And then I lead that mule deer working group and I have for about 13 years or so. And so I, I really have my finger on the pulse of not just Arizona, but what's going on throughout North America mm-hmm. on, on mule deer. And one thing that we've dealt with, I, I was a member of the mule deer working group representing Arizona initially. So I have more than two decades with that mule deer working group. So I've been there from the start. And a lot of a lot of what we dealt with was in the late 90s, we had mule deer populations declining throughout their whole range. And the directors of some of these state and provincial wildlife agencies would get together in the late 90s at, at national meetings and they start talking to each other and realize that everybody, all of the other directors also had mule deer population declining and their constituents were chewing on them about what are you going to do about the mule deer decline? And when they realized this was a widespread decline, they were concerned that there was one thing that was causing this decline throughout their range. And so they assembled this mule deer working group in 1998. And we started looking at um, mule deer biology and factors that affect mule deer populations. And we wrote a book in 2003, and, and we have since produced a ton of information about mule deer conservation in the West. Many of your listeners probably are familiar with our website, which is just all one word, mule deer working group.com. Mm-hmm. And if you go there, there's a whole bunch of fact sheets. I'm sure we can have a, a link in the show notes. Yeah, um, I'll put that in there. But in the 90s, all these populations were declining everywhere. And we got together and we talked about it and we looked at some of the science and, and realized that the fact that they were declining throughout their whole range in the 90s was really, um, there's a lot of randomness in there. And in other words, they weren't declining throughout the range for the same reason. They were declining in the Rocky Mountain states, Intermountain West, because of a series of harsh winters um, and some droughts followed by harsh winters. In the Southwest, there were some droughts that were limiting um, reproduction and and the amount of fawns that we had. And so this happens all the time throughout mule deer range is that populations in one part of the range will be increasing and then they'll be decreasing in another part of the range because of a different factor like drought. And so they ebb and flow in different parts of the range. But in the 90s, they just happened to be synchronized mostly by chance that they're all declining and got everybody concerned. And and we have found out in the two decades since that mule deer populations are they're not in decline. Sometimes you hear people talk about the mule deer decline. And what's happening is they're they're reading our old information from the 1990s that mule deer populations are not mm-hmm. in decline. And and in almost all jurisdictions they're increasing or stable and recovered from those low points in the 1990s. Now, in almost all jurisdictions, they're not where we would like them to be. Uh, most every can jurisdiction. I, can I ask you a question on uh, that? Yep. The, the, so they, they were, there was this big decline in the 90s and, and the, the kind of the low point, what you were talking about, what made the numbers come back? It was, it was a Why return. Why are they of, not in decline anymore? 
Yeah, it was just in, in kind of the northern states, there was a series of mild winters in, in areas. And in the southwest, we had some normal rainfall, a few years of a little bit above normal rainfall. So conditions just kind of came back to average in, in both respects, gotcha. in winter okay. severity and in drought. It's just kind of by chance that these these things came kind of came back to normal. And in, in Arizona, for example, the last 15 years, our deer population is about a steady increase. Um not roaring back, but on the steady increase for 15 years. And so we've got all of our hunters saying, I'm seeing a lot more deer than I did 15 years ago. And if you look at our survey data and harvest information, like what percent of the hunters are successful every year for the last 15 years, these things are increasing. It really shows that recovery of that mule deer population. There's a few exceptions. Mm -hmm. Oregon is one exception where the population not recovering. It's not doing well. Um, Arizona, in fact, in the last two years has started to dip back down. Um, mostly because of drought. We've had a horrible yeah, drought I was gonna say, this year. You guys have been really dry last few years down there. Yep. So you'll hear people talk about the mule deer decline, but mule deer really aren't declining in most places. Only in a few areas are they declining. And so they're not, um, you know, it's not time to sound the alarm that Miss mule deer are disappearing and um, they're going to go extinct and that sort of thing. They're, they're doing pretty well. And if we continue to provide habitat and proper management for them, they'll, they'll continue to recover and, and come back. Probably not. The problem is they're not going to come back to the, say the 1950s and 1960s. Cause that was, a unique situation where in the 30s and 40s, we were doing a whole bunch of timber harvest, opening up these forests. Um, there were more fires before we had a lot of uh, the super aggressive fire suppression we have. And all that disturbance is really good for deer populations because it creates shrubs and forbs, which are little weeds that are a good part of the big part of their diet. All that disturbance mm -hmm. in the 40s and 50s created bigger populations in the late 50s and 60s. And some people look at those times and they say, we want to get back to that. But the truth is, in a lot of places, deer populations at that peak were too high for the habitat. We we can't support that many deer on the landscape. So some people have this artificial idea of what the good old days were and what we need to get back to, whereas the deer biologists are saying, we don't necessarily want to get back to that area because we're going to be having deer populations so high they impact the habitat. Gotcha. Gotcha. And interesting. <laughs> so I need to make a correction then. Because on on my uh, on on my episode last week, I was I was talking to some guys that are um, uh, bird language experts. I don't know if you know if you've ever uh, dealt with folks like that, but super interesting stuff as, as it pertains <laughs> to hunting, you know. And anyways, we were we were talking about how our grandpas used to go out and how successful they were hunting back in the fifties and sixties, and and uh, you know how they they just had this way of being a little bit more connected with the landscape mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. uh, more connected with technology. Right. And so, yeah. And, and I, and I, I stand behind that, but I, but you are correcting something that I said, uh, which was, you know, it's not like the deer population was a lot better than it is now. And they, they were, they were out there still getting it done without Onyx and base map and <laughs> uh, you know, all this stuff that we have now. And so, so that's, that's good to know. So Listeners. Yeah, laser range finders and yeah, laser range finders and heat seeking missiles. Or wait a minute, we don't, you, you don't use that in Arizona, right? <laughs> no, not yet. So all the stuff that's out there, I just want to, you know, let it be known that I, I stand corrected in my my assessment of the mule or the the deer populations in general from the fifties and sixties. Then, okay, good to yeah, know. Yeah, we've got, to know. We've got I appreciate that. human encroachment, or you've got habitats that have been taken up by. Um, 
by a lot of cities and um, by a lot of things that have impacted the habitat. And then we've got restricted access where hunters can't get to that amount of habitat. Mm-hmm. And so even the, even, uh, even lower deer populations are, they're harder to get to and they've got less habitat to live in than, than they did yeah. decades ago. Pardon the interruption, but we got to talk about the show sponsors because they're the ones that make this show possible. I want to start with Scree Gear. Scree is extreme mountain gear. It's high performance hunting attire and gear, scientifically tested camo patterns, and all backed by a great company. And I wouldn't recommend it to you if I didn't fully believe in it. I've I've run the Scree for a couple of seasons now, and I tell you what, if you want to compare the the quality and the durability and the effectiveness of this gear go for it because you're going to find that you're not going to drop a fortune and you're still getting all the benefits of what you can see out there with in terms of high-end gear they offer a complete layering system for all terrains for all conditions it's gear designed to adapt to the weather it's rugged it's backed by a lifetime guarantee uh, and warranty and what i really like about it is the vip sizing and exchange program so basically if you order the hard scrabble pants and you get them and they, they show up and they're not fitting right you just send them right back for free because they send you the return slip label that you just throw on your packaging and send it back. It doesn't cost you anything, and they replace it with a better size for you. So Scree Gear, check them out. And don't forget, at the checkout, use promo code the Western Huntsman for 15% off and free shipping. Heck of a deal. Great company. Great gear. All right. Moving on to Tacticam. Guys, Tacticam is our newest sponsor and I'm really excited about having them on board. If you've ever wanted to film your hunts and have specific and unique like point of view type kind of angles, the Tacticam is the way to go. It can connect to your bow, it can connect to your rifle, they've got the film through scope. Uh, Make sure you're checking regulations on all of that because that changes in every state. But I film in Idaho when I'm hunting and I have the Tacticam attached both to a head harness and a shoulder harness as well as like this flex mount thing so I can I can get multiple angles as I'm calling in a screaming bull elk and get it all on camera. The gear is great and they also have other cool packages like the Reveal game camera. It's a cell cam so you can set that up if you're managing whitetail property or something like that. It's perfect because it texts you in real time when pictures are coming in. The other thing that I really like from Tacticam is their new fisheye camera. For you fishermen out there, when you're trying to get that uh, that that perfect coverage of, of filming your fishing trip, man, this thing is badass. It like it gets the whole wide angle of it, and you can control all of these cameras through an app on your phone in real time. Zoom in, hit record, zoom out, pause it, stop it, all the things right there in your app in real time. Great sound quality, 4K video recording. Get you a Tacticam, and I heard a rumor that we're going to have one hell of a giveaway coming up on the show for some Tacticam gear, so stay tuned for that. Go to Tacticam.com and check it out. Last, but certainly not least, I want to talk about Hoffman Boots. Hoffman Boots are high-quality, high-end, great traction, rugged mountain boots that you need. Every hunter needs a good set of boots, and you could really drop a fortune on great boots, but the Hoffmans are going to give you everything that you can get, just like what, what I was talking about with Scree Gear, without breaking the bank. That's what I love about the Hoffmans. If there's one thing you don't want to chintz out on, it's great quality hunting boots. 
You've seen them. They've been up there hunting. People that chintz out on their hunting boots and they're slipping and sliding all the way down the mountain. The soles coming off. They've got everything. Their their feet are soaked. All that is going to be prevented with a great pair of Hoffmans. I run the Hoffman 8-inch Explorers. It's a great boot, and I can personally vouch for that. But they've also got another great product called the Summit, uh, and that's another popular boot out there. Got the Explorers in insulated, non-insulated, 6-inch, 8-inch, uh, and just check out Hoffman.com, and you can, or I'm sorry, Hoffmanboots.com. And uh, you will be able to kind of pick out all this, all the different options and, and things like that. They've got a great warranty, uh, great company. Jim Hoffman, the owner, is a great dude. Uh, and at checkout, don't forget to use promo code HUNTSMAN10, all caps lock, for 10% off. Enjoy it. Let's get back to the show. So as we're when we're kind of investigating this and, and we're talking about uh, the, the mule deer, they're they're not in like uh, so because so, I I agree with you. I've heard I've heard it said many times. You know the the mule deer, it's a bad time to be mule deer. They're in dire straits, and you know it's just just a just a rough mm-hmm. time for them. Now that said, um, if they're not in that, if if there's generally across the West uh, to include Canada, uh, kind of a steady growth, whether it's you know a slow growth, it's still in a in a you know a pattern of growth at least. Um, what about these real specific areas? And, and I'll use, uh, without giving away my spot, I'll use a spot that I've been hunting, I want to say since 2013. And when I first started going up there, uh, all I saw were mule deer. And there were some big mule deer bucks up there back back in those days too. Uh, now, in that, on this particular mountain, I've noticed every year that the there's less mule deer and I'm starting to see more whitetail. In fact, I missed a huge whitetail up there. I'm still kicking myself over this one like three <laughs> years ago. I'm still upset about it. Um, and, and it was one of those things where, it, you know, it was just an easy shot that I shouldn't have missed this this buck. But anyway, <laughs> um, it happens. Uh, it sounds like you're still upset about it. <laughs> I, I am. I'm telling you, I still, I still lay in bed sometimes. And I'm like, what the hell did I do wrong, man? That thing, that sucker should be on the wall. But uh, anyways, the, so so now like like this last season, I saw maybe two mule deer bucks up there in comparison where I, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, usually 30, 40 different bucks up on, up on this range that I'm hunting, but I'm seeing a lot more whitetail. Now we did have, and, and I want to say it was 2016. We had a really harsh winter and I know uh, that that was an instant, you know, the, the season before that, the fall of 2015, I saw a ton of big bucks. In fact, I think I, I got a pretty nice one that year up on that. I think it, it was either 2014 or 15, but either way, 2016 rolls around after that really bad winter, and I mean it was it was slim pickings. In fact, I didn't even hunt up there anymore uh, that year. So now when I go up there, we've got we've got all these whitetails running around, and uh, very far and few between. We've got some some whitetail. What, before we go there, Jim, what is the biggest like behavioral dif- difference between whitetail and mule deer in mountains? D- does that question make sense? Um, a little bit. Their their locomotion is is different. They have different biology, and but they're they're actually very similar in a lot of um, in a lot of ways. But in, in the way they get around mountains and the kind of habit that they live in, the biggest difference is whitetail are um, more of a brushy, um, riparian area um, inhabit a brushier habitat, whereas mule deer are, are more of an open country animal. They, they use their eyes more to see predators. Their actually coloration on their body, their big white rump patch, their dark forehead and white faces, all that 
black and white contrast is because they're more they, that's sometimes called showy. They're showier. They've, they've got more of that visual stuff going on because they're open country animals and they're more visual. Whereas white tails a little more brownish secluded and they're living in the, in the thick brush and visual communication isn't as important um, to them. And, and the way they move too, you know, the mule deer have that pogo stick like stotting it's called where all four hooks mm-hmm. hit the ground at the same time and they go yep. boing, boing. They don't really make that noise, boing, 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 but I do when <laughs> I see them hopping like that. Um, whereas whitetail, and that's how that's how mule deer get away from things that um, scare them, is they they'll usually do that pogo stick dotting, and that allows them to jump over obstacles a lot easier and go uphill a lot easier. Whereas mule deer usually put their head down, find the easiest path, and they just run. Um, they just yeah. run to cover, and and so those are differences in habitat, the way they use the habitat and the way they move through the habitat, especially when they're disturbed. So observation up there, um, I, I see when I see white-tailed doe, they're usually, uh, you know, a, a doe with maybe maybe a yearling or, or a couple of fawns or whatever. Uh, but with the mule deer, they're herded up a lot more. Is that is that normal? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mule deer are, are herding animals, as is common with uh, more open country animals like the like the big herds on the African plains. You know, that's very much mm-hmm. an open habitat, and <clears throat> they group together in herds for. Uh, for uh, greater protection. There's a lot of theories for that. You know, yeah. some people say since they're so visible, predators can find them easy. They better stay in a group so that they can all be vigilant together and, um, and defend uh, each other. You can come okay. up with a lot of theories for that stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's fun. It's fun just kind of, you know, talking about it, but uh, so you guys, you can see now how my mind works a little bit. I, I, I start going yeah. down one path and I, I get, uh, you know, figured out I want to go down a different path. Yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> but actually, that was interesting, that observation about 2016. One thing I would say is if we're talking about less than 10 years, I'd hesitate to make um, to come up with any any solid theories about what's going on, because it can be a lot of randomness and what animals just happen to be using the areas you were in at that time in there. But mule deer and whitetail um, have different susceptibilities to drought and harsh winters. And it can be that that harsh winter impacted mule deer more than than whitetails in that area. That's certainly that's certainly true. Some of that local things like that, there's no way to to say for sure really what's going on without a full blown research project. Mm-hmm. I I think uh, one of the things that that Dr. Geist talked about was when when we go out and we're we're killing some of the bigger uh, mule deer bucks. There's there's no bucks left to defend the does against the whitetail bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, I've heard that. I've heard yeah. that for for years. He's he's published on that. Um, it's an interesting theory. That's what I can say about it. It's an interesting theory, but I'm not aware of any any science that showed that that's actually true. And Val is a master at that. He's really he's got such a great mind to think about all these ecological relationships, and he's really good at coming up with theories. Mm-hmm. And some people mistake that for facts and and what's actually going on. But what he's really doing is using that brain of his to think about um, what he thinks is going on. And then it's up to researchers to come back and do some research and develop a research project to test that sort of thing. And that's happened um, a lot where he's come up with theories that have been floated out there for a while. And then researchers will come and research it. And in some cases, they show that he was right from solid research. In other cases, they show that he's wrong. And the cool thing about Valerius Geis is that when something's published that proves that his theory isn't true, 
he's the first one to say that was wonderful research. That was so, that was splendid research. He'd say, yeah, yeah, that was really, <laughs> it was an elegant study and very well designed. And it was really interesting results. That's what I love about him is he, he just, he's happy to say, wow, someone actually studied my theory and it wasn't right. Cool. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. You know, it, that's the neat thing about him, but you have to be careful that a lot of his theories are just theories. Yeah. Um, and and some of them need to be tested yet. That's uh, that's interesting you say that about how how he does react with that. I, I, because I feel like <laughs> in terms of the world of science, like you have you have two types of scientists, right? You have you have people and folks that are very ego driven, and then you have mm-hmm. guys like you and Val uh, that they you guys take the the emotion and the ego out of it, and that's why I trust what what you guys both say. Uh, a lot more than than sometimes, you know, uh, with I, I won't mention names, but uh, mm-hmm. other other folks that I hear. And yeah, it's all too common that researchers, someone comes up with a study that uh, doesn't support some work that they did. And the first reaction is to dig their heels in and explain why this other person's research is bad. Yeah. And we in science, you can't do that. Science is all about disproving things. People that aren't really in the scientific realm don't understand that, but science is built on somebody come up with a theory about how they think something works. And then someone designs a study to test whether that's true or not. And you're trying to disprove that. And if you can't disprove it, then maybe it's true. That's kind of the way science works is that you have a theory and if you disprove it, cool, you know, that's, that's not right. Yeah. If you can't disprove yeah. it, then you think it might be right. And, and that's where you learn the most. It's it's amazing. It it reminds me of, uh, have you ever seen like watched a Dateline or a 2020 where they proved that the bad guy wasn't as bad as they thought and he wasn't guilty, but the prosecutor that, that uh, prosecuted it, they yeah. just dig their heels in and they're like, no, 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 no. He, he's guilty still, even though yep. it, it's, it's, it's obvious he's not. It, it kind of reminds me of something like that. Um, yeah. Yep. So in, in your opinion, uh, Jim, can, can whitetail and mule deer, can they coexist uh, and have like a, a pattern of growth uh, population wise on the same mountain range in the same habitat area. Yeah, sure. Sure. It just depends on like the overall density of whitetails and density of mule deer. And then it depends on the habitat. I mean, I hate to be the, the biologist answer is always, it depends, but it, it often does. And, and mm-hmm. in this case, you, in the West, many parts of the Western U S the Northern States, mule deer are in the valleys and riparian areas and mule deer are up in the, in the mountains. And so they're geographically separated and they intermix in, in part of that habitat. Um, they also um, behaviorally, like when it comes to, um, interacting and breeding, they have different breeding behaviors and sometimes different timing of, uh, of the rut. And so they have, and then they eat different foods in, in many cases, although there's a lot of overlap. And so that the ecologists call that a niche. If, if whitetails live in a certain area and eat a certain plant, um, that's their niche. And then mule deer have a different niche. They eat different plants. They live in a different area. And then there's overlap between between those niches, but they can coexist because they're not doing exactly the same thing. They're not living in exactly the same areas or using the habitat in the same way or eating exactly the same foods. And so you can have species coexist as long as their niche is different. And and that's the case for, for mule deer and white-tailed deer. So what about like uh, territorial disputes between the two species? I've heard that a lot. Well, oh, mule deer are a lot more territorial or white-tailed bucks are a lot more territorial. Is there anything to to that? Well, the, the, actually the concept of territories in, in ecology, the, the, the real definition of a territory means it's defended. It's actively defended 
against any intruders. So wolves have territories, javelina have territories where they keep other javelina herds out. Deer don't have, they're not territorial. Oh, really? Species. I didn't they know that about javelina. Yeah, the, the, oh, the, herd, the herd has a territory. And huh. when another herd runs into that territory, um, they'll have squabbles, they'll fight. They got their tusks out and they're slashing back and forth. Um, <laughs> it's like two gangs in, you know, down in, in a street fight yeah, meeting yeah. together in the alley. That's kind of what it's like. And they'll share water sources and they'll share important things like that, that they kind of have to share because there's not many water sources. So they'll tolerate each other and come at different times. But sometimes if they meet each other, um, they defend their territory and that that's territoriality. And so you don't have that with deer. You don't have, you don't have mule deer chasing other mule deer out of their territory or mule deer chasing whitetails out. They'll, they'll certainly coexist in the same area. So in your neck of the woods, you've got, you've got these cows deer running around and, and it, we wouldn't be doing our job, Jim, if we didn't ruffle some feathers and say <laughs> they're, they're cows deer, they're not coos deer or vice versa. <laughs> yeah. I, I talk about that all the time. The, 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 our little whitetails are named after Elliot Cowes, an old army surgeon and naturalist that someone named that deer after. His name is pronounced Cows, C-O-U-E-S. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a manuscript once and he had a footnote and he says, my name is pronounced Cows, C-O-W-Z, in quotations. I mean, that's right from the man himself. So mm-hmm. that's how you pronounce his name. So if the deer is named after him, that's how you're supposed to pronounce the um the name, but I don't correct the 98% of the people that refuse to pronounce it correctly. I, you know, if you've been saying coos your whole life, you want to keep saying coos, that's fine with me, but just don't say that that's the correct way to pronounce it because it's yeah. not. And, and on that, on that note, like with, with cow's deer <clears throat> and mule deer, um, is it kind of the same thing where they have different niches, they have different needs. Uh, and so they're, they're able to kind of mingle coexist whatever yeah, the word. If, you're, if you're talking about the southwest we should talk about that because i yeah. just mentioned yeah. how whitetails are down in the valley and mule deer up in the mountains in the southwest it's flipped completely and it's a really interesting ecological situation yeah, i heard you talking our, about that one time okay yeah yeah I'd so our whitetails are up in the mountains like above four thousand feet in the oak woodland up in the ponderosa pine and mule deer in the, the valleys the desert grasslands the mesquite desert grasslands and so it's a complete opposite which is fascinating because you say, okay, well, whitetails are up in the mountains in the high elevation, the pine trees. But then as you go north in Arizona, you get to Flagstaff and you have no more whitetails north of Flagstaff, but you have tons of mule deer up in the pine trees in the high elevation around Flagstaff. And so that role switches as you go into the northern part of the state and why that is and how they got to be like that. I haven't been able to figure out in 30 years, but it's just a really interesting and confusing relationship about how those they use habitat. Yeah, super interesting. I, I I would like I would love to dig into that and figure out like are there any theories as to why that that is or is that just it's just every kind of everybody's throwing their hands up in the air and nope. saying, I don't know. Uh, from what I've seen, I haven't seen anybody with a, a good theory. And I've wanted for a long time to get some GPS collars on whitetail mule deer and look at their interactions. But when you start kind of getting into the details about how are you really going to um, discern why that is, I, it, I don't. You can't just throw some collars on some deer and then come up with an answer. It's I don't know. It's a really Crazy. hard nut to crack. Huh. <laughs> Okay, that well, that leads me to the next point here. For we got to spend a few minutes, so I'm coming down to Arizona, coming down to your neck of the woods to to hunt yep. a cow's deer in October. How much preparation in terms of mental frustration do I need to have ready uh, by the time <laughs> I get down there? 
<laughs> I don't think any. I think you just come down and enjoy our beautiful October weather um, and enjoy the landscapes. I mean, it's just so yeah. neat to glass this country and be cow's whitetail habitat is just some really beautiful habitat. It's uh, you just can't go wrong spending some days up on a hill mm-hmm. um, looking for deer for sure. They're they're um, they're pretty twitchy. They're pretty on point. Um, they uh, I think living in uh, a more open landscape than an eastern whitetail. I think they're probably used to a lot of things trying to attack them. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of predation down there between you. You guys have the red wolf down there, don't you? No, we've got a Mexican wolf in Mexico and Arizona, New Mexico. And then the red wolf is in North Carolina. People get those confused because they're both endangered small wolves. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think I've confused that on another episode too. Yeah. That's right. The Mexican wolf. Uh, And, and going back to, we can circle back to that here in a minute, but I, I kind of want to stay on this um, whitetail mule deer thing for just a minute because we were talking about in in Arizona and hybridization uh, and, yeah, and how so, what's taking place in the desert there. Yep. So and, and it's not just here. Every place where mule deer and whitetail deer in North America uh, overlap and are found in the same area, we've documented um, hybrids it's like true 50 percent whitetail, 50 percent mule deer. And Arizona did some early research on that because we have so much overlap between those two species. And there was um, a University of Arizona researcher that put them in captivity and produced them in captivity. So we we knew early on, we kind of knew what their characteristics were, were like. But the hybridization happens. It's extremely rare. Um, sometimes someone has a mielder tag and they shoot a white tail and they put the mielder tag on the white tail and they're trying to convince the game warden they're at least half right uh, when they shot that deer. But in a lot of cases, it's um, <laughs> oh, man, in a lot of cases, that. that's not a hybrid. Hybrids are, are they're pretty rare. What happens is you have white tail with tail configurations and antlers that look kind of different and maybe mielder like. And you have mielder that have maybe dark on the back of the tail or mule deer that's a young mule deer, and it looks like it has a main beam with all independent tines coming up like a whitetail rack. So mm-hmm. You have those situations that are that get people thinking they saw a hybrid, and and really it's less common than that. But really, in the in the recent decade, with uh, with social media, Instagram, Facebook, with people sharing all these pictures, now you're starting to see a lot of this stuff documented that you would never see before because mm-hmm. people weren't posting pictures to the whole world right from the kill site. Um, and so you're seeing some more hybrids pop up. And I think it's just the fact that you're able to share those pictures, uh, pictures easier, but they, they do, they're, they're close enough related species that they will interact. But like I started to say before, mule deer and white-tailed deer here, the breeding seasons are the peak of the breeding season is about two weeks separate. So yeah. the, the breeding time overlaps, but they occupy different habitats like we talked about, but also their breeding behaviors are really different. White-tailed deer are chasers. A white-tailed buck will chase the female doe, just chase the doe and chase the doe and chase the doe until she finally lets him uh, breed her when she's ready. Mule deer breeding behavior is, is very laid back. Mule deer bucks are gentlemen. They just walk behind the doe. There's no chasing. Um, they just walk behind the doe and they test her. They put a, a, a leg up on her back and see if she holds still or if she walks out from underneath it. She'll just take a couple steps and then he'll take a couple steps. So he follows her in this slow, gentlemanly-like breeding behavior. And then when she's ready, she'll tolerate some weight on her back and she'll let um, the, the buck breeder. Well, you can imagine when you have white tail bucks and mule deer bucks and, and all the does, some in estrus, some not in estrus, you can see a white tail buck chasing a mule deer doe. 
she's going to take one step and that whitetail buck's going to be ready to chase her four miles. And so you've got this aggressive whitetail buck pursuing mule deer does. And, and that's where you often get hybridization in that direction of whitetail bucks to mule deer does. Not a hundred percent of the time, but usually more often it's, it's in that direction. What, what is the survivability of a, of a hybrid deer? It's low. So even when they had those in captivity <clears throat> and they had, they were protected from predators inside a fence, they have all the food and water um, they want. They had really low survival of those hybrid fawns. So there's two different species mating, and there's all kinds of things physically and physiologically that can just not be right in that in that fawn. And, and that is the case. They're not very thrifty, as um, as the old biologists used to say. They're not very hardy. And so if you, you translate that to something outside a fence where you don't have unlimited food and water. You've got a bunch of predators running around looking for any little um, fawn that's acting a little funny and, and they get, they get snatched up. That's why they're not very common. In fact, Valerius Geist had a graduate student named Susan Lingle at the university of Alberta that they had captive whitetail mule deer hybrids in, in, in captivity too. And Susan Lingle for her master's degree would bring in a, like a German shepherd on a leash to simulate a canid predator mm-hmm. and test how pure, pure whitetails uh, reacted, how pure mule deer reacted and how 50, 50 hybrids reacted. And she found that whitetails would run away. Mule deer would start away. They'd do that bouncing, jumping, starting away. And she said the hybrids would kind of run and jump around in confusion around the predator. It's like they couldn't decide whether they're supposed to run away or they're supposed to start hopping around. And that confusion made them look um, really awkward and and probably probably results in predators being able to snatch them up pretty easy. Yeah, super susceptible. Um, and in, in my, my, uh, my audience here listening in on, on, on this episode, they should know what starting is. That was one of our trivia questions about six weeks oh, ago. Good. So, yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, I, I love that. I, that, because if you think about it, you, you know, the way that you were describing the way that, a you know, a whitetail evades predators versus how a mule deer evades predators. And then you mix those two together. Like there's a, that's a totally different, that's like, I don't know. I don't know how to compare mm-hmm. it, putting a boat motor on a pickup truck, you know? Yeah, and, and, and Valerius Geis was the first one to, to publish the idea that starting probably allows them to jump over boulders and over obstacles while predators have to run around them. And that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And, and people have done some research that supports that. But also, uh, my son and I just wrote a chapter for a mule deer book on um, my son's finishing his PhD on mule deer in, in Texas. And we oh, wrote nice. a chapter together on physical characteristics of mule deer. And we talked about starting and we got into some of the scientific literature in Africa. There's a whole bunch of those African animals on the flat grassland plains that start. They do the starting. Oh, really? And so it can't be 100 um, percent jumping over obstacles. I think that's part of it with mule deer in the in the West. But there also is probably some visual things going on there, too, of the deer showing the predator. I see you. Don't even bother. Don't even bother chasing me. I see you. I'm doing this strange hopping. It might also communicate to (laughs) all the other deer in the area. Hey, heads up. Heads up. There's something in the grass here. So there's probably more meaning than just that original theory of jumping over boulders. I was uh, probably 16, 17 years old and a couple of buddies of mine. Uh, I always, they were kind of city slickers. They didn't have a lot of hunting experience or anything, but I, I took them out, um, jackrabbit hunting in the mm. sagebrush. And you know, you get these big jackrabbits going through the sagebrush. It looks like a mule deer backside, <laughs> right? When they're starting. And so I had, uh, we were walking and all of a sudden I see this, he's a little, you know, two point mule deer buck. He starts starting away up on the other side of this little, um, kind of ravine we're on. 
Well, the one of the dudes I brought with me took that as a jackrabbit. He thought it was a jackrabbit and started shooting at it. Oh, and I'm like, dude, stop <laughs> shooting, man. What are you doing? It's like March, you know, <laughs> luckily, luckily he was a terrible shot. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that down here we've got cottontails and big old jackrabbits and, and then we've got whitetails and mule deer. And it's kind of interesting that kind of relationship because the whitetails, uh, the, the cottontails are just like little whitetails. They've got their little, their little white tail. They hide in the brush. And then mm-hmm. take off running and they never stop. And the jackrabbits have the big ears like mule deer. They have the, the more white on them and, and contrast like mule deer. And when you jump them, they'll, they, they, something, they hop, you know, they'll run and hop and hop. Yeah. Um, they can and move. more open, kind of more open country showy rabbits. And, and that relationship has always interested me. The two deer and the, and the two rabbits. Yeah. Then you've got I, the I wouldn't jack, have ever jackalope. put that together. Inter- yeah. The jackalope. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. You've got the jackalopes. Of course, a lot of people don't think those are real, but. What's the jackalope season in Southern Arizona? <laughs> I think it's year round. It's year round for the females. <laughs> Open game. <laughs> yeah. For the females, it's year round. Okay. All right. <laughs> I've I actually some... wrote an article about um, jackalopes that, um, um, that I thought was pretty good. <laughs> where is that? Can I, can, where, yeah, where it's posted. Um, it's been, I just recently actually posted it on my Instagram account, which is Jim Deer, J I M dot D. E E R E like John Deere. Mm-hmm. And actually my, my uh, icon is like a John Deere logo that I photoshopped into a mule deer rather than a, a white tail. But if you go to Jim Deere on um, Instagram, you'll that was a couple posts ago. I also got a, a website, um, deernut.com, D E R N U T.com. And I've got all a whole bunch of magazine articles, including that one that are just PDFs on there. I'm going to put that in the show notes too. Deernut.com. Yep. Okay, I've got some social media questions that came in. Um, you good with answering good. a few more? Yeah, yeah, great. All right, cool. I've got uh, my buddy Brian Brooks asks, uh, what is the number one cause of mule deer mortality and what is the remedy? Yeah, um, it, you know, guess what? It depends. Um, I, and, and actually, I was just reviewing a manuscript last night and people were, this happened to be in the, um, in the, the northwestern part of North America, and people were reviewing the the um, causes of mortality for deer in that that part of the world, and and it's it's different everywhere. Um, nu- nutrition, malnutrition, and how that relates to animals being more susceptible to predation. This stuff is so interrelated, um, and it all boils down to habitat quality. If you have good habitat quality, you've got really good reproduction, really strong survival, and predators are can't hardly make a dent in the population just because the deer population. Reproduction is high and survival is high and the population is doing well. You go into a drought situation or you get a really bad winter uh, condition where mortality is high and the reproduction the next year is low. You've got declining deer populations. Then predators can make a much greater impact to um, populations. A lot of people talk about predators and in in general, predators can't have uh, much of an impact on a population when it's going strong and growing. They just can't catch up to them. But but they can have they can predators can have an impact in the deer population by slowing an increase in the deer population and accelerating the decline a little bit faster than it normally would. Um, so that's kind of the major impact for predators in in most mule deer populations uh, throughout the West. We've got diseases and we've got accidents and we've got road kills and that sort of thing. They they all contribute, but they're not major mortality factors. So uh, you know I would say it. it it all comes down to nutrition and it's and and how nutrition affects all of the other sources of mortality. 
Okay. Cool. That was a good answer. Let's see. Pulling this back. Okay. Scott Schmid. Um, he'd been on the show before. Actually, both these guys have been on the show before. I think they're 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 like uh, stalking me. <laughs> they're groupies. <laughs> <laughs> no, great guys do. Okay, his question, and, and actually this was one of my questions. Um, can you explain or describe uh you know, give us your take on minimum antler point restrictions in over-the-counter tags on public land. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I think that, that that it it's important to separate that from like you know, the private game ranches. Yes, I'm. I'm glad to hear those caveats, those sidebars, because those are really those are really important. We're talking about not limited entry draw. We're talking about wide open, over the counter. Mm-hmm. So anybody that wants to go hunting there on public land, so there's a lot of good access. There's not private land protecting animals. When when Western agencies. And we have a fact, Mielder Working Group has produced about 35 fact sheets on individual topics that come up. And we have a fact sheet on this that has some individual um, numbers. And and we can link to that or people can find it on that. Yeah, I'd, lo- Working I'd love Group to website. have that information. Yeah, but in, in a nutshell, Western agencies have tried antler point restrictions in that setting and 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 have have gone away, have done away with them because they didn't work. What happens if you do a four-pointer better antler point restrictions. Now everybody out there in the field, nobody's shooting a spike and going home, shooting a two point and going home. Everybody's staying out there in the field until they find a four point. And every four point that's observed by a hunter is, is getting killed and going home. So what happens, they're usually intending to produce more four by fours because we want those younger animals to grow up until they reach four by four. But in reality, what it does is the opposite is it chops off that age structure so that everything that reaches four by four gets removed mm-hmm. and taken out of the field. And so through the, the series of years of agencies actually trying these in that situation, um, they they've stopped doing it because it just, it doesn't work. I think that there's an element to that uh, because I, I, and obviously the, what you're saying is, is completely in alignment with what I've been saying for a long time. And I, I I'm not a scientist, but uh, I, I'm a dude that has hunted a lot of point restriction areas. And and there's this element that happens when um and this could be the same for like when I was when I was hunting in Utah, they would have this really short seven to ten day deer season where everybody would go out, they're up there the whole time and they're whacking everything with antlers, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like the Normandy beach landing, it sounds like, especially on opening day. Because yeah, I, I hunted whitetails in Wisconsin growing up like that. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah, and, and I always attribute it to you know when you when you compare that to hunting in Idaho where you have uh, a, lo- a much longer season, much more liberal season. Uh, you know, it calms people down. We have time. We can we can we can be a little more picky. All these things, and I don't know if there's any truth to that. But to to your point of of uh, with the antler restrictions, I've I've. It, that same panic that the short season seems to create, that same panic happens in these in these point restriction areas units. Like I mm-hmm. had a I had a big and I've talked about this on the show. In fact, I, I had an episode about it last year where uh, I had been working this five point buck and it was it was a four point or better unit, um, you know, restriction. And this was in the state of Washington, uh, and and uh, I had worked this buck all morning and didn't realize that we were getting closer and closer to the highway. So when I was about to, I was just getting within range to take a shot on this buck and some jackass pulls up on the highway and shoots him right from the, right from the road out their window and shoots it right out from underneath me. And, and, you know, man, it almost, um, words were said, 
words were said. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so uh, that I think that so the point I, I, I'm getting like tongue tied here. I get I, so you can tell I'm still <laughs> pissed off about it. I would be too. Freaking jerks. Anyway, I, I think it creates this panic and it creates this this rushed, um, you know, desperation level level of desperation for hunters that sure. you know they want to get it done. They want to tag out, and I don't blame them. But but those kind of things, I'm I'm against antler point. And I don't know if Scott uh, that the wrote the question is or not. I don't know if he's for or against antler antler point restrictions. But for me, I've always been against them. I, I think they they're stupid. Not everybody wants to go shoot a four or five point, and they there's just really no data that backs up that it creates a much more uh, mature class, uh, you know, and in fact, what, what you're talking about is it, it kind of does a reverse. So, yep. In, in these wide open, under those, under those circumstances in wide open public land, um, there are some Eastern state, Texas is using it in a lot of counties um, in for whitetail in, in Texas. And the hunters seem to really like it because what it does is it's not, it's not a, like a four pointer better. Cause we're talking about whitetails, but mm-hmm. it, and I forgot what the restrictions were, but what they felt is that it allows, um, it allows the bucks to get one year older, I think is the issue. And, and, yeah. and um, they, I don't, they, the biologists and the hunters both um, like it. So I, I don't want to say antler point restrictions are um, dumb everywhere. I think there's some places where, everybody's pretty happy with them, but that's not Western public land mule deer. Like I think, we're talking about. I think that when, when we're talking, cause I, I've got a, I've got a friend, Troy, who's been on the show as well. And he's, he's a big, you'd like him. He's a big time mountain whitetail over the counter, um, public land buck hunter. And he, he's extremely uh-huh. successful. Uh, really good dude. And, and I know he gets really frustrated because we, you know, like in Idaho, for example, we have like a five-week rifle deer season that runs right through the rut. And you see a lot of little two-points getting taken out and, and a lot of young, immature bucks. Some of them are, you know, uh, they've, they've got those little, I, I, I always call them a button buck, um, just a little nubs even, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and I agree with him to that extent. Uh, but to say that we need like a four-point antler restriction uh, and, you know, not everybody's after that. And, and I, I think that it's, it's, I don't know, just in my opinion, it's more detrimental than it is good. So anyway, glad yeah, we covered our, that. Our family rule has always been, if it's big enough to fit in a tortilla, it's big enough to go home with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that and must, most deer are big enough to fit in a tortilla. Oh man. I, I have yet to find one yeah. that won't. I've got, I have four boys and, and my dad's 87 and we just got drawn for cow elk in, in December with two of my sons and my dad the the four of us and so we're all about just spending time out there and yeah and having fun and glassing and getting some venison in the freezer yeah yeah for sure for sure i think i think one thing that would help like in our area and this is a big this is a big discussion up here uh are are the they're very liberal with the doe tags and the doe seasons uh mm-hmm. and i think that could be detrimental but i you know again i am well, not a imp- biologist yeah. Again, it depends. I hate to say that, but, but it, in some areas, it's really important to have that doe harvest to keep that population from being over carrying capacity. And then all the animals are impacted nutritionally mm. and survival is lower and, and uh, you lose animals other ways. Um, 
But in you know, in some areas like in the southwest, we don't have doe harvest south of the Grand Canyon because our desert populations just don't have that high and consistent reproduction to get our populations way over carrying capacity. The the periodic droughts that we have every few years knock the legs out from underneath the reproduction and our populations never quite like max out with what the habitat can hold. And so we don't need to come in then with doe harvest and knock that population down yeah. um, to keep them in, in, um, in a, at a good spot in relation to the amount of habitat. But, but in the Northern Rockies, you, you absolutely do in some situations. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Okay. One more question from uh, Facebook here. Nate Stevens says or asks how, and this is a great question. How much does hunting pressure during the rut affect breeding? Yeah. Great question. Yeah. I like um, this one. We, we actually did a study with cow's whitetail in the mid nineties where they radio collared some cow's whitetail in the Santa Rita mountains south of Tucson. And then the researchers during the rut, starting a couple of weeks before the peak of rut to a couple of weeks after the peak of rut, they took telemetry equipment because these deer had radio collars and they chased the deer during the rut as if, you know, hunters maybe were out there mixing deer up and disturbing them, but they chase individual deer. And when they bump it, it'd go over the next ridge. They'd go up to the next ridge and they'd chase it again. And they kept chasing it until it was out of the study area or it just went so far that they, they lost track of the signal because of the topography. And then they'd go chase another deer. So throughout the rut, they kept chasing these whitetails. And then they compared um, the reproductive performance of those animals that were disturbed with other animals that were randomly um, sampled and not disturbed and found no difference in the percent of the does that were pregnant, no difference in the average number of fawns per doe. Um, they couldn't find any difference in all of that disturbance. And so I've always thought if that intensive uh, of disturbance going after an animal throughout that whole rut um, doesn't produce any differences, it's hard for me to believe that um, hunters out there bumping deer once in a while has a significant impact. If you think about, think about all the deer in that mountain range, and then think about what percent of of them are being bumped or disturbed during hunting season. And is it just once? And then they go to a secure area and they're not bumped again, which is probably the case mm-hmm. in, in most situations. So I just, when I think about the details of that, I just have a hard time believing that uh, a high density of hunters in, in most cases, I don't know every situation, but in most cases, I don't think that's an impact. Okay. That's good to know. I've, Cause I, I've always wondered that I didn't even have an opinion because I didn't know one way or the other. Uh, but it would make sense. I think, I think that that would be a natural thing to go to. It's like, okay, there's so much hunting pres- pressure during mm-hmm. November for, on these whitetail. It's got to, it's got to affect the breeding. But sure. yeah, I've heard it, it for years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah. No, man. But, but you also have to consider, you know, like where I live, we've got wolves that are pushing these deer around. We've got, we've got grizz, we've got black bears, we've got coyotes, we've got fox, we've got all these mountain lions and, and all this pressure, this other pressure. Uh, yeah, they you evolved know, with all those things. They, exactly. I mean, they, yeah. Since the Pleistocene, they had all those things. They were yeah. getting pushed around by wolves. Um, so, hmm. and I don't know what would be different now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't either. Other than just the added, added hunting pressure, um, on that, on that, on that note, like with, of, uh, hunting elk in September, you know, with, with, with people calling in elk, do you, what is your opinion on this? Uh, when you're talking about breeding seasons for, well, let's talk about elk. When, the the growing popularity thing going around, especially on social media, talking about how we're we're educating the elk and they're starting to uh, you know pick up on the fact that all the hunters are making the same sound as they are and they they remember that the next year kind of thing. <laughs> what what is your take on that? 
I got nothing. I don't, you know, because I'm not in there doing the September seasons. I haven't looked for or seen any research on that. I just don't. I'm kind of clueless about that. I don't know. It's just not something I know anything about or would have the kind of experience that I could even form kind of a useful um, opinion. I just, I don't know. All right. I've got a really official study for you that you can, you could reference. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you ready mm-hmm. for this? I'm all- yeah. I, I hunted, <laughs> I hunted the same drainage for 10 days last September and uh, <clears throat> called in the same exact elk three different times. And, and every, the first two times he busted me both times and, and uh, got out of there and it would take a couple of days, but I called him in again and then he busted me. And a couple of days later, I called him in and in, uh, called him in again, finally stuck an arrow in him. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess I, when, when I'm, when I'm looking at it from, I, I would be concerned as a hunter that, you know, every year we've got all these guys out calling in elk, uh, and bumping the elk. Uh, but then I had that experience where it's like, man, that elk didn't learn shit. And he wasn't like a spring chicken mm-hmm. either. I mean, he was, he was a decent mm-hmm. bull, you know? And so uh, that's always an interesting topic, com- conversation that, that we've had. Yeah. The urge to breed is a pretty strong urge in, mm-hmm. in most mammals. And and it's probably individuals are different too. Sometimes you'll get like big whitetail bucks that are really skittish and really cautious. And you get other ones that are pretty dumb. So there's even, there's all kinds of other variations out there too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very true. Kind of like humans. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Yep. Well, Jim, man, this has been a fun conversation. Uh, it's, uh, I, you've always got an open invite on my show, man. I, I want you to know, <laughs> okay, good. like I love talking about this stuff. I know sometimes I, I, I might bore some people in the audience, uh, w- with this stuff, but I love it. And, and I, I like learning about it. I like learning from guys like you that have actual real world experience and, and the, the scientific, studies that take place to actually back up where that leads your opinions and theories. And uh, I think that's important stuff. And we, we need more dudes like you that are out there that are actual hunters and also do this for a living. Um, I I think that would do many States a lot of good to have people like you in those positions. So yeah, that's um, why I enjoy having conversations like this because I have, I, in my professional world, I deal with the science and then in my personal world and interest, um, I'm just like everybody else with, with a lot of these questions. So maybe I can make that crosswalk a little easier than, than most academics or most scientists. Well, what part, what part of Arizona are you in? Don't you live down in in Tucson Tucson, here in Tucson? So I'll be down in, uh, uh, what the heck's the name of that town? Sierra Vista. Uh-huh. Not very far yep. from you. I don't, I don't think. Right. Right. It's about an hour Southeast. Okay. Yep. Well, when I come down there, I, I'm, I might bring the podcast gear and, and uh, buy you a cup of coffee. Maybe we could do this again. Let me know when you're coming down. We'll see if we can work out for sure. Okay, cool. Uh, tell everybody one more time where we can find you on Instagram. Yeah, best place is probably Instagram. It's Jim Deer, J-I-M uh, dot D-E-E-R-E. Um, just look for the Mule Deer John Deere logo. Yeah, it looks like and the John my, Deere my, tractor my, logo. Yep. Yeah, but but it's a Mule Deer. It's a Mule Deer, yep. <laughs> yeah. And then I've got a website, which isn't a great website, but it's there and it serves its purpose. It's... Um, deernut.com deer and then nut.com and i i've got um part of it's i've got my deer my book deer of the southwest that i publish which is out of print you can't buy a copy right now or it's been reprinted and sold out right away yeah what um, is the deal with that between you and dr geist books we can never freaking (laughs) find them why is that? I, I, they're they're popular, and I'm talking <laughs> to the Texas A&M University Press. They 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 were planning on doing a third printing last fall, and then um, said COVID uh, financial issues kept mm. them from doing it. And now 
um, they're trying to get me to come up with some money to help them publish it, which is, which I'm not going to do. They, they made tons of money on the, on the book. So I told them, um, to go jump in a lake. So yeah. they, they will, they are still planning on, uh, doing the third printing, but since I sent the last email to him, I haven't heard from him. So it, it'll be out. And if you follow me on social media, you'll, you'll certainly find out when it's available. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to need you to give me a heads up prior to you posting that. So I at least have a prayer and a hope <laughs> yeah. of getting that damn book. I've tried to buy it like three times. Um, yeah, so. they actually just reprinted it. Uh, the second printing was in, um, I think it was two years ago and within a year they were all gone. Okay. Well, okay. So in the show notes, I'm going to have, I'm going to have deernut.com. I'm going to have your Instagram handle. So you guys, you don't need to go in and search for him. Just click on that uh, link there in the show notes and you, you'll be able to find him. Uh, you do have, I, I think, I don't know if we, we were recording when I told you this, but you, you have a great Instagram, uh, really interesting to follow. Lots of great information. Uh, I'm also going to put this mule deer working group.com uh, website mm-hmm. in the show notes. Good. Uh, that's yep, a, good. I've been kind of poking around on that since we've been talking here. In fact, it's probably, uh, got me a little bit distracted a couple times, but that's a great website. <laughs> uh, it's got a lot of 20 years of really good mule deer yeah, stuff from, yeah, so from lot, the West leading mule deer biologist. Mm-hmm. And we had a, we had a ton of questions on when I, when I posted, Hey, if you, if you, what, what kind of questions do you have for, uh, you know, the deer expert? Um, I know you don't like to call yourself that, but that's, uh, no, you I are, don't. you are for sure. Uh, that, that website will answer a lot of those questions, guys, uh, that, that you, mm-hmm. you know, I only got to three or four of them there. So, um, anyways, Jim, thanks again for coming on. Um, I, I'm serious. I'm going to, we'll, we'll, we'll have to hook up when I'm down in Arizona there and, mm-hmm. um, you know, good. good. I enjoyed it. It'll be beer or coffee. I don't care. You take the pick. Yep. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Wisconsin, so you can guess which one I'll pick. <laughs> Thanks again for coming on, Jim. This this is great. All right, you bet. Thanks. You made it all the way to the end. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. We sure appreciate your support. This is Jim Huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at Instagram at The Western Huntsman and on Facebook at The Western Huntsman. And you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com. Thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.